we are going to talk about a subject that often splits churches. Yeah, it is. Okay, so we don't have, there's no carpet to argue over. We don't even own a building yet, you know, like, give me a break. We ain't got nothing. Uh, but so as we go, can't even, can't even fight about that yet, man. Yeah, no. So, and it, it's only been controversial for about a hundred years, actually probably less than that, no, about a hundred years, about a hundred years. And it's only been controversial in the United States. Knowing those things, can anybody guess what our Sunday school discussion is going to be on? Jesse. Women. <laughs> that dude's got one thing on his brain. <laughs> He's only got one thing. Y'all pray for Jesse. <laughs> Let's try another one. So that would have been controversial for a lot more than 100 years. <laughs> 100 years and only in the United States. Can you guess, Stephen? No, no, although I could see that one. That could be something, you know. Could you think of it? Controversial in the United States, only in the United States, and for about 100 years. Any other guesses? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving? No, no. That would be an exciting Sunday school class to teach, actually. Now that I think about it, that would be a fun one to teach. Man, I wish I was teaching that one, actually. Now that you're saying that, that would have been a lot of fun. Oh, well, we'll do that next year. Any other guesses? Today we're talking about... Landon knows. I can tell by the look in his eyeballs. He just didn't want to say it in loud. <laughs> Today we're talking about alcohol. Okay, so uh, that's, this, is, this is true. So the, the deal is there's a lot of folks who treat this category, this topic, as like the litmus test for Christianity. You know, um, whenever I was growing up, I was, I was born and raised in uh, Jackson Parish, North Louisiana, and there was a big, prominent Southern Baptist church there, and all the, the deacons, right? One of my, my brother was dating one of the deacon's daughters at that church. If you're familiar with Southern Baptist culture, you know what all these words mean. Um, and so whenever he went over to go visit her, he had a secret cabinet in his like garage that had a key on it, and that's where he kept his alcohol because he wasn't allowed to have it because he was a deacon at a Baptist church. And this, it becomes this high, high-pointed issue, and it split churches for tons and tons of years. It, sometimes it tends to be more of an emotional topic. Now, y'all, remember like the first couple of times that you started to, to be taught Christian things, and they were a little bit different to the culture that you grew up in? And you reacted to them like, oh, I don't know about that. It was an emotional response rather than a biblical response. I think that happens a lot of people here uh, to a lot of people in our area. Now, we are in the deep, deep south. And so Roman Catholic influence kind of takes the edge off of this. Like in North Louisiana, the, I don't even know that I could teach this Sunday school class in North Louisiana. Like I'd probably immediately get fired or shot or both. You know, one of those two things might happen. But it would be a lot easier, even in our Roman Catholic influence, laissez-le-bon-temps-roulé culture, to just avoid the subject, because there is still some schism um, in South Louisiana over the subject of alcohol. But we want to believe all of Christ for all of life, right? So that means every single subject. If God's sovereign over all things, if he's got law and command over all things, then we want to follow and trust him in all things. And I'll just give you... 
I'm just going to tell you where I'm going with this, okay? Cards on the table. You ready? Cards on the table. I've said this from the pulpit several times, so many of you probably know what I'm about to say anyway. But when we celebrate the Lord's Supper on Sunday, it should be wine. Period. It should be. The Bible says wine. It should be wine. And when we're not using wine, we are, in effect, disobeying. And if it, if it, can, be anything, if it can be grape juice, then why can't it be Coke? And why can't it be Ritz crackers? And why can't it be Skittles? Do you see what I'm saying? God set up a very specific sign. It, it should be wine on Sundays. Cards on the table. This is where I'm going. Now, realistically, <laughs> excuse me, I'm already getting choked up. Realistically, it's going to take a year, probably, before we're able to move the whole church in this particular direction. But cards on the table, this is where I'm headed. I think it's important for us to celebrate the the Lord's Supper, the way that the Lord has laid out for us to celebrate it. And so that's where we're, that's where we're going. So as we go through this, um, and I'm also not ignorant to the fact that we have a lot of folks who come to our church that have a history of alcohol abuse and addiction and, and trauma as a result of that. But listen, we can't add to the law of God because of our personal experiences, okay? We just can't. Now, I do think that there is a season of time where when someone has been dealing with an addiction, that they should have a season of abstinence. I think that's, I think that's a good practice to have. You should have a season of abstinence, abstaining, of staying away um, from something as you are growing and developing your, I don't know, your thick skin and stuff like that. And especially if you're connected to a center that deals with almost exclusively people who are like the refinery. If you're connected to a center who deals almost exclusively with people who have dealt with this at some point or another, you should follow the rules of the institution to which you're connected because that's for the betterment of everybody in the room. Like that's just period, full stop. We gotta deal with all these pieces. And I also recognize that because we are who we are, this is gonna look a little different than say it would look at Northside, okay? It's gonna feel a little bit different. But we're heading in a direction, we got a place to go. I think these things are important for us to discuss. And at the end of the day, we wanna say, we believe all of the Bible, right? That's really what we wanna say. And we obey all of the Bible. And we're not gonna let our fears or our social concerns or whatever dictate what it is that we are, we are going to do, we're heading towards. Um, and I'm very blessed that I get to be a part of a church where we have people who a decade ago, two decades ago, were literally being drugged out of ditches and bushes because their addiction had taken them so deep, who now have matured to the point where the Lord has redeemed and restored so much of their lives. Like, I celebrate that all the time. And if you don't know that those people are in this room going to church with you, you haven't met anybody yet. <laughs> like, it is, it's a lot of us. <laughs> it's a lot of us that have that kind of experience and that kind of story. So as we're growing through this together, I would encourage you and challenge you to when you feel the emotions, if this is you, you start to feel the emotions swell up inside of you, just say, I want the Lord to tell me what to do. And just relax. He's a good shepherd. He's going to care for you. He's going to direct your lives. He's going to direct the lives of his people. And we're going to move on from there. Amen? Amen? All right. There's three primary views that are held, I would say, in the United States. Now, whenever I say at the beginning of this class, whenever I said this is only a problem for the United States and it's only been a problem for the last hundred years, why is that true? Anybody who knows a little bit of history, don't say it, David. Just hold on. I know you have it right there. Just hold on. Yeah. Why, why is that true? 
because of the prohibition movement. That's exactly right, because of the prohibition movement. So get this. What was the precursor to prohibition? Okay, now, David, you can talk if you want to. What was the precursor to prohibition? Does anybody know? High rates of alcohol abuse, well, I mean, not so much, because if you look during the years of prohibition, what happened? Oh, it, went away. it got worse. <laughs> and not only did it get worse, but who made money off of it? The mob did. <laughs> you know, like the mob exists because people added to the law of God. Have you thought about this before? Isn't that crazy? The mob rose to prominence during the bootlegging times because of prohibition. But let's think back a little bit farther. It's the 1920s, 1930s. It's that era window of time. What's going on in a nationwide, worldwide scale? Oh, Robin's got it. Yes, yes. Jesse's like, I was going to say it too. I was going to say it too. So radical. It's all women's fault. No, <laughs> but, it, but listen. Okay, so there, there are issues of... I'm not saying that it's all the women's fault. There are issues of alcohol abuse happening in homes, and women look at the alcohol as the problem. And then this is happening around the same time as the women's suffrage movement that's going on throughout the world, and also the prohibition movement, the women's suffrage, women's right to vote thing. Okay, whew. All right, we're going to have some fun. You ready? Okay, so here's the deal. The nationalism movement hits the stage on a worldwide level. That started with the French Revolution and it moved throughout all the other Western colonies. Right behind the nationalism movement is the radical individualism movement, where we say everyone is their own person. So we move from being covenantal household-oriented in the West, I'm talking about the West, to being individual-centric. Then women's suffrage is a part of that individual-centric part. You see, whenever only men voted back in the Gap, what does that really mean? It doesn't mean that only men in and of itself voted. It means that each household had a vote. It was a representative republic, right? But when we moved out of this covenantal representative republic mindset and more into a radical individualistic mindset, we said women's suffrage came up, and women's suffrage, one of the big, <coughs> excuse me, big catapulting movements of that forward was prohibition, was prohibition. Isn't that crazy? And then as a result of prohibition, we had so much evil stuff go on to the world. This was an American problem. If you talk to like the churches in England, and we say, yeah, we have a real problem with alcohol in our churches and people, you know, saying that they should never drink it. All the English pastors are like, what? That's a problem in your country? What's wrong with you guys? And be like, well, you know, Prohibition. And they're like, what's that? We're English. <laughs> Winston Churchill, I think, drank like four gin and tonics before breakfast or something crazy like that. That's a joke. But really, you should look it up. It's kind of insane. It is actually kind of insane. So there's all this stuff that is just isolated to us in a worldwide stage. Now, having said all that, let's get through the three primary views. The first is the prohibitionist view. These people believe that all alcohol is condemned in Scripture no matter what. It's not fit for human consumption. It's sinful to drink, and it may be even sinful innately of itself. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with the prohibition view? The Bible, <laughs> right? Well, Jesus' first miracle was what? He turned water into wine. What's the significance of Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine, specifically in lights to the use of alcohol? 
Do you remember? What did the feast master say? He, he said, most of the time, after Jesus turns water into wine, the feast master, the master of the feast, comes up to Jesus and the disciples, and the, I think the person, actually, no, it was the person who was throwing the party, and said, wow, most of the time, people save the poor wine for later. Why? Because everybody's a little loose, right? But not you guys. You guys saved the good wine for later. So here's a party where everybody's already a little bit wined. Do you get what I'm saying? And Jesus is like, here's more wine. Now there's a lot of nuance there, and I'm going to get to that later. So don't just be like, Jesus says, let's get hammered, because the Bible explicitly commands not to do that. But we're going to get into those details later. So the prohibitionist view that it's condemned in Scripture, not fit for human consumption. There's people who believe this. There's people who believe this. But but the Bible flatly says that it's no. In the Old Testament, um, was wine a part of offerings to God? Yes. We're going to read those Bible verses later. In fact, not just wine, but there's another category for for, uh, alcoholic beverage in in the Old Testament. You know what it is? Strong drink. I have some cool things to tell you about that in a little bit as well. All right, so the first view is uh, prohibitionist. The second view is called an abstentionist view. Okay, that's a person who doesn't believe that it's sinful, but chooses personally to abstain. Okay, they, they say, well, it's, it's not sinful, but I, I shouldn't partake in these particular things. The Bible doesn't necessarily condemn it, uh, but a wise person would just totally abstain because of how bad the world is right now and loose morals and how available it can be and how potent it is now. That's, that would be an abstentionist view. Well, let's ask real quick, what would be a biblical problem with an abstentionist view? Can you think of any? It's adding to the law of God. Well, they're not necessarily saying it's a sin, but they're saying, but a wise person would say this, right? What does that assume? That, that everybody else, that, that Jesus wasn't wise, right? And that anybody who partakes is a fool. Um, you had all those kinds of issues like that. Anything else that you could think of that there's an issue in this abstentionist view? Can you all think of any other reasons that there might be a problem there? Dave? I was distracted by my kids, so someone already said this. Sorry. Yeah. Exactly. So in the Old Testament, how is wine, well, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, how is wine used as an illustration? Is it used as an illustration of bad things? No. Again and again, wine is used as an illustration of blessing, of riches, of joy, of celebration. Again and again and again, you see that. That's, that's just a pattern. That's why we celebrate, celebrate the Lord's Supper with wine, because it's a feast. Do you get the point here? Whenever we pour Welch's out, it's kind of like, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a party. But there's this pattern throughout the scripture that celebration, those kind of things come with wine. All right, so there's the prohibitionist, there's the abstentionist, and then there's the moderation movement, okay? Now, this one, I think, is where I'm trying to get us all to land. There's the moderation movement. What, what, what do you think that means? What's a, what, is, what is that? What's it? Don't pass out in a ditch. Don't pass out in a ditch. <laughs> yeah. The moderation movement means that we obey the scriptures, we, in, we enjoy God's gifts in moderation, okay? 
Um, there's a lot to say about this and a lot of details that we could go into that I'm going to spend over the next few weeks, but that's where I'm, I'm trying to land. Now, I got a lot of Bible. So y'all ready? We're going locked and loaded today. Why is a subject like this important for us to go through? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the what? Y'all know? Glory of God. And if you read the rest of the context right there, he's talking specifically about people having issue with meat being sacrificed to idols. And Paul's like, he says verbatim, do not allow yourself to be a slave to somebody else's conscience. You should give for them, but that doesn't change the way that you live all of your life. And he says, whatever you do, he's talking specifically about this topic, whether you eat or drink, you do all to the glory of God. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17 says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything for the name do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Plus, I mean, these things affect the way that we are God's witnesses to the world, right? If we're going to talk about alcohol consumption, we need to do it the way the Bible says to do it so that we're not adding to the law in a public way. We don't want to lead somebody into a false god. And we also want to make sure that we are living as distinct Christians to the, to the rest of the world around us. Now, like I said before, it is a very divisive issue in church culture in America, in the South. But if I'm going to pick a side, I'm going to pick the side that the Bible says, okay? I want to be, I want us to be a distinctly biblical church that follows all of Christ and all of life, because that's what God's going to bless. Do you get what I'm saying? He literally says, if you add to his law, he will curse you, right? I don't want to be cursed, and I don't want our church to be cursed. And I believe that if we live authentically the way that the Lord has called us to live before others, that he will bless us. He will bless our efforts of evangelism and proclaiming the gospel to others, but it's our job to live truthfully before others. Now, <clears throat> there is a sin involved here. What's the sin? So we're talking about alcohol consumption. What's the sinful side? Is it a sin to drink? Well, we already talked about that. The Bible makes pretty clear that that's not true. It's not a sin to drink, but what is the sinful part of it? Oh, yeah, drunkenness. Robin used the word gluttony, but same difference, right? It's the same thing. It's abuse of something. Now, we're going we're gonna to get into this a lot in just a few moments. But one of the things that we have to address is when is drunk, right? Because for some folks, they're like, well, the moment I feel any difference at all, I'm drunk. I don't think so, Tim. I don't think, because for some of y'all, that's like a quarter of a 4% beer. You know, like that's, 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 that's not it. That's not it. Because wine is actually more stout than beer. Did you know that? Um, a beer is on 4% on average. Wine typically is like 11, like 11%, 9%. Like it's, it's a high ABV. Five is 15. That's a wine? Five is beer usually. 15. It's a glass of wine. Oh, okay. I got you. I got you. My, I will default to the budrick on that particular subject. But yeah, so, and wine's got more potency to it. Wine's got more power behind it than a beer does. But we've got to be able to figure out where this particular line is. Now, I'm going to be spending several weeks to try and help us get to this spot, but it's not as soon as you feel any different at all. 
That's not it. Um, and if you're losing control of your faculties, you're definitely over it. But I would argue that the point is somewhere between those two. And it's probably on a sliding scale for most of us. But I do want us to get to a point where we can say, I know that this is too far. Do you know what I'm saying? Because I think we need to get there as a people. We've got to be able to say, I know that this is too far. So I don't know, maybe everybody carries a breathalyzer in their car or purse or something. I don't know. Like, then we would be those people. Hold on. Everybody take it out. Ski! No, maybe we shouldn't do that. But maybe that would be helpful. You know, I, I don't know. It's 0. .07. What's the limit? 0. .06? 0.08, look, y'all got way more experience in this than I do. Mm-hmm. Let's pray for these people. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. The sin of drunkenness is listed throughout the Bible. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 1. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Ephesians chapter 5, 18. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not rioting in drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lavishness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, envying, murders, drunkenness. It's in the list. It's in the list. And we should pay very close attention to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortionists shall inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, the Bible even goes farther than this. All right? So the Bible condemns drunkenness. It says that a drunkard is someone who will not even inherit the kingdom of God. Now, a drunkard is someone who's given over to alcohol, right? Okay, that's... This is not somebody who has, like, I had a couple of glasses of wine the other night. That's not a drunkard. That's not a person who, I have a glass of wine with dinner every night. That's not a drunkard. A drunkard is someone who's mastered by their addiction. Do you get what I'm saying? And I would put this in the category of just about any addiction as well. So the Bible's very clear that being a drunkard is, is very sinful, and being controlled by it is very sinful. But it even says in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 20, be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 says, But now I have written unto you, unto you, not keep to the company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortionist, with such no one shall eat. Do you see what I'm saying here? Like there's, so not only is the Bible saying, hey, being drunk is sinful, being a drunkard is sinful. The Bible also goes as far to say, hey, if they can't control themselves around it, you should not be around them. You should put distance between you and them. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Why, why does that make a lot of sense? Why, should, why, why do you think the Bible would be drawing those conclusions? Say that again. It, it, could be, it could be a temptation thing for you. That's possible. Could you think of any other reasons? Is a drunkard self-controlled? No, they're not self-controlled at all. They're mastered by something else. Let me ask you this question in a different way. Are they predictable? Is a drunkard predictable? No. Some of y'all are like, no, because you have personal experience. They're not predictable at all. One second they could be happy and laughing with you, and the next second they can be coming after you and wanting to fight. Anybody ever had that experience before? 
Yeah, you've definitely, yeah. You see what I'm talking about? So the Bible says, hey, if there's somebody who's given over to drunkenness, make some distance here. Like, you, 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 you should separate yourself from those people. The Bible also talks about drunkenness as a curse on society as a, as a whole. A drunken, a drunkard, excuse me, somebody who can't control themselves with alcohol should be church disciplined and dealt with until either they repent or they're excommunicated. That should be the way that those people are treated. Do you get what I'm saying? They, it is a sinful thing. They need to repent. And if they don't repent, they should be excommunicated. And that has to do with not just drunkenness, but also with any type of addiction. If you refuse to repent of your sin and it masters you and controls you, then you go under church discipline. And if you refuse to repent continuously over and over again, after you go through the whole like three, four step process of church discipline, if you refuse to repent, then eventually you're excommunicated. That's the way it works. And that's done. Why? What's the significant gift of excommunication from a church? Paul says, turn their soul over to Satan so that their soul may be saved. He makes that very clear. All right. Drunkenness is also a curse on society. Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 13 through 14. Then shalt thou say unto them, I got the KJV pulled out today. Thus saith the Lord, if you didn't know that already. Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne and the priests and the prophets and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. That's a curse. He's saying all these leaders, I'm going to give them over to their addiction. I'm going to throw him away. That's what he's really, uh, if you go, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 21, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Nahum chapter one, verse nine through 10, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty and drowsiness. Oh, whoops. I copied the same verse wrong. I'm going to have to skip to Lamentations. Lamentations chapter four, verses 21 through 22. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that Dwellest in the land of us, the cup also shall pass through unto thee. Man, I did pull the KJV. Thou shalt be drunken and make thyself naked. It's a shame on society. Do you see it? When the leaders are participating this way, it's a shame on them. And it's a terrible, terrible thing to be dealing with. So we see drunkenness is sinful. We see drunkenness of leaders and of a nation as a judgment of God on that nation. And it's also a mechanism that people use to distort reality or to escape. You know what I'm talking about? Now, and don't think that this is something that like, yeah, those poor drunkards, they go to the bottle whenever they're sad. Everybody has a thing that they go to to escape. Y'all recognize this about yourselves? Everybody does this. For some folks, it's food. For some people, it's entertainment. For some people, it's the zombie scroll on socials. For some people, it's, I mean, pick your, pick your poison here. But everybody has something that they go to when they, want to when they want to get away, when their anxiety ramps up and they want some type of uh, dopamine hit to be able to take the edge off. For some people, it's the bottle. Jeremiah, oh, I'm sorry, no, this is Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 23 Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine, and they that go seek mixed wine. He's saying, you you got a lot of problems, it's the the same people. The people with a lot of problems, they're going to the bottle to try and uh, escape their problems. Jeremiah chapter 25, and they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Now, because of this, the Bible also prescribes, y'all listen, prescribes wine and strong drink as a relief to people going through suffering. You guys know this? The Bible says this. One example is here. 
Proverbs 31. This is 31 verse 6. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let the poor man drink, the Bible says. Give strong drink to the one who's about to perish. Give strong wine to the person who's, who's got a heavy heart. Let the poor man drink. It's a prescription from the Bible. Somebody who's going through suffering and going through a hard time, the Bible actually says, hey, maybe you should just have a scotch and go to bed. <laughs> you know, maybe you should just go lay down. Now, for someone that is suffering, for someone that is going through painful duress, let's say you have some kind of illness, for a long time that was commonly practiced. You ever hear stories about the dentists in the 1800? Actually, back then they were called barbers. Did you know that? Yeah. Your barber was the guy who also did small surgeries on your mouth and other parts of your body. I'm not making this up, okay? I'm not making, to be a barber back in the gap was very serious. But what would you do? You ever seen the old westerns? They'd pour a bottle of whiskey down your mouth and hand you a strap to bite down on while they suck the bullet out of your rib cage or something like that. Like, that's, that was a common practice. Now what do we do? We do exactly the same thing, except you pay $1,800 for it at the hospital. You know, like, it's, <laughs> do you, get, it's, it's, you get numbed by the anesthesiologist who has lots of magical needles, and then you, you owe them, I don't know, $1,800 is probably a gross underestimation. It's probably considerably more than that. Uh, but the Bible prescribes these things to you. Now, I'm not saying, Pastor Stewart said I had a toothache, so I have a bottle of whiskey every night. Like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying here. You should go to a doctor. <laughs> you should get your stuff dealt with. But there is an understanding that the Bible has prescribed this to us four times of pain and of suffering. But we also have to be careful Luke chapter 21, verse 34 says this, And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with suffering and with drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day may come upon you unaware. So what, what's that saying? It's saying, hey, God's given you this to help relieve some of the suffering, to help relieve, but watch out, because if you keep running to this instead of to the Lord, it's going to take your life over. He's given you something as a what? As a good gift, he's saying, hey, sin exists here. Rest, take the edge off. It's going to be okay when you're suffering, when you're down, you're despairing, when you're, when you're actually in pain, whatever it may be. Here, I've given you a good gift. But just like with every gift from God, if that becomes your God, if you worship the creation rather than the creator, what happens? You got problems. No. Nobody says, well, some people uh, have a sexual addiction problem, so we should all only be celibate. Well, some people actually do say that. My bad. But normal people don't. <laughs> okay? That would be crazy for us. Well, some people have a problem with gluttony, so we should all starve. Nobody says that. But we draw this conclusion with this particular topic for some reason. And we can't let that happen anymore. Do you all have any questions so far? I kind of just went through a lot really fast. So you see what we're talking about here? Wine, strong drink, gift from God, abuse of wine, abuse of strong drink, sin. That's what we're really saying, okay? Okay. <clears throat> now, the Bible also makes it clear, and I'm running out of time here, the Bible also makes it clear that there, this will affect your ambition if you abuse it. It'll affect your, your work. 
Um, Proverbs chapter 31, verses 4 through 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. That's the two verses actually right before Proverbs 31, 6, which is an interesting combination. Lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. What's that saying? Hey, if you're an elected official, you should not drink on the job. <laughs> All right? You should, that, you should stay away from that stuff. You're going to get yourself in trouble. You're not going to make good calls while you're at work, or maybe if you're you know, at work, period. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. In other words, drunk rulers can't do justice. That's what that's saying. You, you can't affect God's law well if you are, everything good? Okay. You can't affect God's law well if you're uh, blazed all the time. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 20, something that we already read earlier. Be not among the wine bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. You can see how that'll down your daily productivity. I have tons of Bible verses. I'm skipping a lot of them because I'm trying to get through as much of this as I possibly can. If you want my notes, Hit me up after the fact, and I would love to give them to you. But let's just keep rolling through here. There's lots of social ramifications that happen from this as well. There's lots of health issues that come out of the abuse of alcohol. Like what? What's one of the health complications that happens as a result of the abuse of alcohol? Your liver failure, right? I know guys who have dealt with liver failure because they abused alcohol all their life. It's a very serious thing. The, the eyes go yellow, their liver starts to shut down, and eventually they die. They don't make it through unless they get a transplant. And if you have a history of alcohol abuse, the chance of you getting a transplant is very low, almost zero, as a matter of fact. Um, there's not health issues with alcohol consumption directly, but there is health issues with what? Abuse of it, right? In fact, uh, a glass of red wine a night with dinner is actually good for you. There's health benefits to that. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Um, and there's the general effects on the, uh, uh, your morals itself. Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwellest in the land of Uz. The cup also shall pass through unto thee. Thou shalt be drunken and make thyself naked. In other words, if you drink too much, you're not going to have the restraint that you normally would have. So keep controlling yourself. Don't drink so much. So, does the Bible condemn drinking? No. But it does condemn the abuse of drinking. It does condemn the abuse of alcohol. That's a sin, and you should repent of it. Uh, Christians are to be logical. We need to think consistently through this particular issue. The Bible encourages the moderate, medicinal, and sacramental use of alcohol. So, the Bible condemns the misuse but it puts forth the proper use. It's, it's saying, hey, let's talk through this a little bit more. Now, I want to use some illustrations. It's 945. I'm going to spend five minutes, and I'm going to run through some examples of counter-arguments to this. Um, first off, one of them is that they say, hey, the Old Testament word for wine actually means grape juice. Let's just throw that out in the dumpster right now. The Old Testament has several words that it uses for wine. One of them is yeyen. Everybody say that with me. Yayin. Isn't that nice? You actually did it. I'm very proud of you. Yeah. So one of them is yayin. Yayin is used 141 times, and it means a fermented, intoxicating drink. Now, how do we know this? There's several different reasons, but one of the easiest first ones is to say that every time the word yayin appears, 
in a Greek lexicon or a, or a Bible dictionary, it knows that the word means wine. These guys who come after the fact and say things like, no, 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 it's just grape juice, are actually coming with a presupposition on their hermeneutic that no other Bible scholar has had before them. There's also the understanding of first use. If you go to, uh, there's, there's this thing called the interpretive principle of the first mention. If you've ever, this is, there's a great book called God Gave Wine. I can't remember who wrote it right now, but it's on my shelf and I'm going through it. It's one of the resources for this study. Um, but the interpretive principle of the first mention means that the first time that the word is mentioned, how it's used in that context is very structurally determinative on the way that it's used throughout the rest of the Bible and the way that you should understand it. The first time that Yayan shows up is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 21. What's happening there? Does anybody know off the top of their head? Huh? Noah whenever he gets off of the boat. What's the first thing that Noah does? Plants a vineyard, gets the wine, gets hammered. The word there is yayin. And he drank of the wine, yayin, and was drunken. And he was uncovered with his tent. See, this is the whole deal here. We can see clearly, 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 clearly in the Old Testament that that word yayin has to mean wine and it has to mean fermented and alcoholic. In fact, if you go back, let's just go through a few more examples. Uh, Melchizedek offers wine to Abraham as a gift and as a divine blessing of the priest to God. Melchizedek is like, Abraham, here, take this wine. He's not saying, Abraham, take this evil stuff. You know, he's offering him a blessing to him. God commands the gift of wine in his tithe. That's Exodus chapter 29, Leviticus chapter 23, Numbers chapter 15, and chapter 28. The Levites received wine as their gifts in the Old Testament. And Psalm 104 depicts it as a gracious gift from God. Like there's so much that we can go through here. The gift of wine is a symbol also in Isaiah chapter 25 of, can y'all guess? Isaiah 25, we're dealing with a lot of prophecies. What could the gift of wine be a symbol of in the prophetic realm? It's Isaiah. It's Isaiah 25. Blessing, blessing but there's a specific one. Yes, blessing. The blessing of the promise what? Of the promise of the Messiah. Yes, absolutely. Very good. Man, see, y'all are smart people. I love going to church with y'all. It just made me happy. There's also another word, though, and it's shakar. Anybody know what shakar translates to in English? Off the top of your head? There's wine, and then there's strong drink. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. There's shakar. Now, it's usually associated whenever you see uh, shakar pop up. It's usually associated with people drinking too much and getting into a fight, okay? It's normally the way that it appears throughout the Old Testament, but that's not the only way that it's appeared. It also appears alongside wine over and over and over again, and it's, it's made likely, likely, shakar is, is pretty close to beer, likely. It, it's likely fermented grapes and dates, and some, and some wheats, and some yeasts, and stuff like that. That's likely what shakar is. And I would wager that shakar, the word strong drink, doesn't mean strong in the way that we mean strong, okay? I, I would wager that it means more in the complexity of the flavors, okay? Because if you think about wine, wine's not very punchy. But if you have an IPA, it kind of punches you in the face when you drink it. Do you get what I'm saying? I, I would wager that it would sit more like that because I also know a little bit about the fermentation and the brewing process and, and wheats and dates and things like that are gonna ferment differently than, than grapes and stuff like that. You see, there's a, there's a different bit here. So anyway, <clears throat> wine is clearly illustrated one way. Shakar is talked about other. And shakar is also 
commanded to be utilized as an offering. Did you know that? Strong drink? Numbers, write this down because this is fun. Numbers chapter 28 verse 7 gives a specific command. And the drink offering thereof shall be a fourth part of a hen for the one lamb. In the holy place thou shalt cause the strong wine, shakar, the strong drink, to be poured unto the Lord for a drink offering. So that means the Jews made it on the regular basis, and they also offered it unto the Lord in the same way that they offered wine. So the Jews were the first ones to, like, pour some out for your homies? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, yes, and amen. And God, actually, if you go read, I'm not going to read this because it's a lot of verses, but write this down and go read it on your own later on. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 26 God actually encourages, this is the passage where it says, if you can't bring your offerings with you and you can't get them to travel with you, you should sell them and then buy some stuff to throw a party unto the Lord. Why don't we do that anymore? What's wrong with us? Uh, But in the things that he instructs them to buy, strong drink is there. Buy wine or strong drink and throw a celebration. Amen. Amen. Wine is characteristic of a party, and it should be. So there's one more word. Um... So there's Shakar, there's Yayin, and then there's Asis, okay? Or Asis, depending on how authentic you want to be, and not like the computer monitors. Um, but that refers to like newly pressed wine. And some people will be like, see, Asis, newly pressed wine, that just means grape juice. No, because in Joel chapter 1 and Isaiah 49, it's Asis that's used, and Asis can intoxicate. It makes it very clear there. And it also says in Joel chapter 3 and Amos chapter 9 that Asus is a blessing from God. You see? All this stuff is here, man. So there's a, there's a lot more for us to get through, and I don't have enough time to do all of it on the first day. That's why it's going to take me several classes. But just know, this is controversial, okay? So as we're studying and learning about it, some of you may enter into what we would like to call the cage stage, Do you know what I'm talking about? You get this new knowledge in your mind for the first time, and then you're like, I know this thing, and I will tell everyone about it because they are wrong, okay? And I would encourage you, my friends whom I love dearly, my sheep, the people of my flock, don't do that, (laughs) okay? As you enter into the cage stage, just relax, and you know, just be like, just be chill, just be like, no, I'm learning some new stuff. Man, you want to talk about it? And then don't slap people around. Don't use it to attack folks. Don't be like, this is what's wrong with you and all of your people in your church. You know, like, don't do that. Just relax. Let's spend a couple of weeks studying it really well. And then we'll one day get some maturity underneath our belts and be able to help our brothers and sisters around us too. Amen? So say no to the cage stage confrontations. Say no to that. I'm, I'm risking a lot here, finishing up the learn how to fight Sunday school class and running alcohol right behind it. That's a big dice to roll here, but I'm saying, hold on, just hold on, just hang out, don't fight anybody over this yet, let's learn a lot together, and then in a couple of months, we can have some good, strong, loving, healthy debates. Don't bring this up at the Thanksgiving table. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Love y'all. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much that you're good and that you teach us. I pray that you'd continue to teach us and you'd help us to enjoy your words and delight in them. Um, Father, would you 
as we are following you this morning and as you are teaching us your words and bringing us along, I pray that we would joyfully receive them as we receive all of your good gifts. May we default to your word and your commands above all, and may we enjoy it. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, see y'all in a few minutes.